0: So for today's short episode, we are going to be talking about fallacies. We're going to be talking about types of inferences that superficially appear good, but are in fact mistakes. And we're going to go through this from Michael Humer's book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value. And for those of you who listen to primarily the long podcast at Reading Rebellion, this is a cross post from Reading Rebellion shorts. For those of you listening to this on Reading Rebellion shorts, you know what this is like. I wanted to cross post today just to show you guys on the long podcast that this exists, that this is something that may interest you if you're interested in the content that we share on our main feed. We've been going through for a, a little while here, I would say about a week and a half maybe, content on argumentation, propositions, the characteristics of propositions, how to think more clearly, how to be more rational, how to... Seek the Truth in a Philosophically Rigorous Way, and we've been doing so, as I said, with Michael Humer's book, Knowledge, Reality, and Value. Michael Humer is a philosopher, a living philosopher, who has written some really incredible work on various subjects. Yeah, let's just jump right into it here. So, let's just go through this list of fallacies to give you a sense of what these are like. So, the first one is Affirming the Consequent. This is the error of arguing, if A, then B. B, therefore A. Suppose you hear that if a person walks on the moon without a spacesuit, they'll die. And you hear that Uncle Joe has recently died. It's a fallacy to infer that Uncle Joe walked on the moon without a spacesuit. Another uh, fallacy that's very, very deep psychologically is appeal to authority. We've talked about authority before in various episodes. I think the Frederick Douglass one is where we really dug into it to understand how regular people were pulled into aiding and abetting the system of slavery, even when they initially were not inclined to support it. And authority was a big part of this. So an appeal to authority is where you accept an idea because of the good characteristics of the person advancing it, particularly if the person has some sort of expertise or credibility or status. From some other area. Ad hominem arguments. So we've all heard of ad hominem arguments, but it's basically rejecting an idea because of irrelevant bad characteristics of the person advancing the idea. An ad hominem argument is not just like an insult. It's specifically rejecting an idea because of the negative characteristics of that person. An argumentum ad ignorantium an appeal to ignorance is concluding that something is the case merely because we don't know anything to be the contrary to that. So authors sometimes try to like lure us into this by writing, there's no reason why X would be true. There's no reason to doubt X. Things Things of this nature where they kind of flip it and put the onus on you to prove that it is or isn't the case, but they don't support their own argument with evidence. And argumentum ad populum is an appeal to the people. So inferring that something is true from the fact that it's popularly believed. So you can see that a lot of these are (laughs) not only fallaciously used in regular political speech and argumentation, but actually intentionally used as strategies. I mean, think about it. Appeal to authority. Ad hominem attacks. uh, Appealing to ignorance appealing to the common beliefs of people and saying that something must be true because it's popularly believed. I mean, these are, as we discussed in the Brian Kaplan episode, like these are strategies of politicians, not not mistakes they're making. Attacking a straw man is another important fallacy. So basically it's like attacking a position that your interlocutor doesn't hold because it's much easier to refute than the actual position. So usually this will involve, like, attributing a view to someone that's more extreme, more simplistic, or otherwise just dumber than what they actually believe. Begging the question. So begging the question is... It's basically circular reasoning. It's reasoning where one of the premises contains the conclusion, or presupposes the conclusion, or depends on it for its justification. So the Bible is the Word of God... Because the Bible says it's the word of God. is an example of a circular argument. A complex question can be fallacious if it contains an unstated presupposition, which makes the question unanswerable if you don't accept that presupposition. So, have you stopped voting for the degenerate bastards who want to ruin the country? Is an example of this. Where you have baked in uh, multiple presuppositions there that are unsupported, and so you can't really answer that question without acceding to those presuppositions. So there's denying the antecedent, which is the error of arguing if A then B, not A, therefore not B. So if a person walks on the moon without a spacesuit, they die. Uncle Joe has not walked on the moon without a spacesuit, therefore Uncle Joe has not died. Emotional appeals Again, an active strategy in popular debate and argumentation. Basically, so it's pretty obvious what this is. It's attempts to invoke or provoke emotions in the audience that might cause them to change their beliefs based on those feelings. And this is a highly effective strategy, unfortunately, but it's, it's not helpful for spurring truth-seeking. And we talked about Eliezer Yudkowsky and his idea of rational emotions. And we've also talked about the role of emotion in cognition and in in reasoning and irrationality. So it's not like emotion is necessarily bad, but frothing people up using irrational emotions is is bad and will take them away from the truth. Equivocation is a type of argument in which a word or expression is used in two different senses, but they're treated as the same. So all jackasses have long ears. Carl is a jackass, therefore Carl has long ears would be an example of this. A false analogy is an argument that is no good because the two things being compared are not really comparable. Like the government should be able to exclude foreigners just as I can exclude strangers from my house. A false dilemma is when an interlocutor tries to make you choose between two alternatives presupposing that those are the only alternatives when in reality they are not. So this is like when someone asks you, do you think abortion is murder or do you think it's a woman's right to choose? Woman's right to choose. It's a false dilemma because there are other possibilities. So for example, perhaps abortion is wrong but not as bad as murder, perhaps it's not wrong but it's still no one's right. So it's like a false choice that's been put to you. The genetic fallacy. This is confusing the thing's origins with its current characteristics. Inferring that all governments are currently evil because governments first originated in gangs of exploiters and conquerors. Hmm. Interesting. Guilt by association. The mistake of rejecting an idea because it's associated with some undesirable person or idea. So... This is an interesting one because, again, it's very common. So the example Michael Humer gives, one of the examples is arguing that drug prohibition is bad because some of the early drug laws were motivated by racism. So drug prohibition may or may not be bad, but the association that is uh, imparted to them by their relationship to racism in, in the case of early drug laws, that doesn't make it a bad idea. It's either a good or a bad idea on its own merits. So hasty generalizations, drawing generalizations from small amounts of evidence, non sequiturs. I was doing this a bunch when I was talking to my family earlier this week. So basically, this is a sort of catch-all for cases where arguments premises don't at all support the conclusion. Persuasive definitions. So here it's like trying to make people accept your conclusion by building it into a definition. A socialist might try to define capitalism as a system of oppression in which greedy businessmen exploit the poor. So the problem here is like whether the system is exploitative or oppressive needs to be established by argument. It goes back to this idea of like strong versus weak premises in a way because... And this is true for the complex question one as well, where you're baking in a lot more there that is unsupported. And there's like links in the chain that don't have adequate evidence or backup. So doing less and saying less and arguing from narrowly defined, tightly defined, widely accepted premises is just going to make your argument that much stronger because those premises are easy to establish as true. So poisoning the well is a rhetorical strategy of trying to undermine an interlocutor by warning the audience that he can't be trusted for some reason. This is supposed to make it impossible for the interlocutor to defend himself, since the audience is not going to listen to what he has to say in his own defense. So this is a very common tactic as well, often played along identity lines, where it's like, hey, because this person comes from this background, don't listen to them, you know, um you do see a lot of dismissal of people from the majority population along these lines where it's like, Hey, this guy is a a straight white male. So whatever he says is irrelevant, you know? Um, So it's, I mean, again, it just is not a effective way of finding the truth. So post hoc ergo propter hoc. So it's after this, therefore, because of this. So it's, The mistake of assuming that because B follows A, A must cause B. Many people die shortly after being rushed to the hospital, but it's not the case that being rushed to the hospital causes death. Though when I did drive an ambulance, I was told to not rush to the hospital because the risk of traffic accidents in many cases exceeds the risk of harm to your patient. Now, most people don't follow this that that I was volunteering with, but it is something that they tell you in that training. So red herrings are issues that are not relevant to the topic of conversation and distract people from the main issue. So Tu Kuo Kui Fallacy is responding to a criticism by saying that your accuser is guilty of the same failing. So Sue tells Jack he should stop eating meat. Jack responds by saying that Sue has bought some animal products. It doesn't matter because their guilt or innocence has nothing to do with your life. But it often does succeed in distracting people again. it's just like I don't want to like sound like a broken record, but every single one of these is not just a an occasional mistake, but like a frequent tactic in political debate. Which is one of the most common forms of philosophical debate we all encounter in our daily lives. Though so I think it would be nice if we encountered other forms of philosophical debate more often, particularly epistemological debate. Um, we'll talk a lot more about epistemology on the on the short channel because I just think it's a really important topic of like how can we know. What we know. What does it mean to know something? Where does knowledge come from? What is knowledge? I think this is a very, very relevant and important topic for the prospective rationalist to delve deeply into. So, yeah, so well, the last one on here is like weak manning, but to me that's the same as straw manning, but it says it's not the same. <clears throat> because, okay, yeah, yeah. So weak manning versus strong manning. Weak manning is like picking the least reasonable opponents and arguing against them. So someone does hold this view. In strong manning, nobody holds this view. In weak manning, somebody does, but it's not the most credible or strongest person you could be debating against. Whereas steel manning is you are seeking out the strongest articulation of the view you're seeking to rebut. Or ideally, first understand and then decide if you even need to rebut it because you may not. So I think that's a good place to stop. Um, We will be talking about false fallacies next. So these are things that people think are fallacies or things that seem like they might be but actually are not. And this is a pretty interesting section. We also have a bunch of other errors and fallacies that are really interesting that aren't in the traditional philosophical canon of fallacies but are still ways in which your your mind can lead you astray. So we'll go through all of those and then, yeah, we're going to get into some pretty interesting stuff about absolute truth, objective reality, subjectivity, relativism. Really, really excited about that uh, because I just feel like we really need... a uh, We really need a good case for reality, if there is one, because personally, I think it's an important topic. And then we dive into epistemology, as I said. So tomorrow's long podcast on the regular channel is going to be about the psychology of money, a book by Morgan Housel, who's a VC and an author. And it's an interesting book. I have mixed feelings about it. There's, there's things in the book that I love and have already changed my approach to investing and to managing my money. There's things in the book that I absolutely hate. So I hope you get as much out of it as I do. And for the things that I hate in the book, I'm supplementing it with an essay by Peter Thiel called you are not a lottery ticket. <clears throat> and with that contact at RDMR underscore I, underscore IO or uh, dot IO. Sorry for the email and RDMR underscore IO on Twitter, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.